Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. Hello, I'm Paul, still with Stephen, still running our Pain of Scale episodes recorded before the coronavirus crisis. And today, what an eloquent man, what a fascinating episode as well, because it was recorded as the whole thing was going down, actually, <laughs> with Marty, Marty Kagan. Yeah, Marty's amazing, isn't he? Isn't he so articulate and so yes. eloquent, but also so compelling? And there's no bullshit. It's like yeah. straight to the point, you know. Yeah. He says what he thinks. He says what he thinks about the best companies and how they really think about product and, and the rest. Unequivocal. Really, really enjoyed that conversation. And he was stranded in a hotel room in, in Sydney. In Sydney, yeah. Um, while the whole crisis was, was emerging. There's so many things I would take from this. But I think one of the things that became increasingly clear to me personally, but I've seen it across our portfolio, in this current situation is the need for focus. Yeah. And his mantra for product leaders is don't think about prioritizing, don't think about roadmaps and endless list of features. Think about empowering your product teams to solve problems. Mm-hmm. The most important problems for your business, which is how do I acquire more customers? How do I give them a better experience? How do I reduce churn? How do I increase revenue expansion? The goals he talked about are very much at a, a kind of strategic level and then empowering teams to solve those problems with ruthless focus. Yeah, he said strategy is not tactics. And it's even more important right now in a time of crisis, obviously. Yeah, of course. And he really kind of painted out some very interesting approaches for product teams. What I'm really pleased about is this podcast. I think it's coming out on Tuesday the 9th. And on Friday the 5th of June, we actually launched a product leadership academy with close to 30 of our product leaders from across our portfolio taking part in a coaching program with Silicon Valley Product Group, which is obviously... Oh, wow the organization that Marty founded, we're really thinking about how we can instill that kind of world-class product thinking into our portfolio at at scale. I wish I could attend. For those who can't, we'll play you the episode. It's a fascinating one. So let's hear Marty. And we are back. I am Paul and I am with Stephen as always. How are you, Stephen? I'm very good, Paul. Yourself? I'm very, very good. We're in the middle of the, the flu crisis right now. <laughs> all the three of us here, and you're going to introduce the guests in a few seconds, we're all in different locations, so we're safe. We're doing the social distancing. Yes, that's right. To, we're going to talk about products today, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it goes without saying, really, doesn't it? That at the heart of every great tech company is a world-class product. But the interesting thing about that is the huge gulf that exists between the product capabilities, the very best tech companies and the rest. And it is a pretty large gulf. We're joined today by one of the world's most biggest thinkers on this topic and on product strategy and and who talks very elegantly and eloquently about that big difference between the world's best tech companies and their product strategies and the rest. And that's Marty Kagan. Marty has held executive positions at eBay, Netscape, Continuous and HP, a number of startups, Fortune 500 companies. He's the author of the much quoted and and much recommended book by me as well, which is called Inspired, How to Create Tech Products Customers Love. 
He published that back in 2018, I think, didn't you, Marty? And um, he's a partner with the Silicon Valley product group. So, Marty, welcome. Thank you very much. I've been reading, you know, doing a bit of research and watching some of your videos and reading some of your blogs. And you wrote quite recently something that really struck me. You wrote recently that very few tech companies have product strategies. That seems extraordinary. Why is that? And um, where are companies going wrong? Well, that's a big topic for sure, but it's pretty clear to me that most of the ones I meet don't have product strategy. Now, they do have goals, of course. They all have, and they're pretty much the same goals. You hear them all the time in your portfolio companies. You hear they have goals around growing their revenue, about reducing churn rate, about reducing their acquisition costs, increasing their lifetime values. These are all normal and good goals, I would argue. And then they have roadmaps. And roadmaps, of course, are tactics. They're not strategies. Tactics, they're basically features and projects that they think will help deliver on those goals. And so the vast majority of companies, that's what they have. They have some big company goals that are usually set by the board once a year or so. And then they have roadmaps that they give to teams. And teams plug away on those roadmaps. And of course, this strikes me as ridiculous because in good companies, it's very different. There is a strategy there, which is meant to come up with a plan to actually make sense of uh, how are you going to deliver on those goals. The actual features and projects that we end up doing will discover those tactics, but in between there is product strategy. And um, as far as why companies don't do it, Honestly, that's a more complicated discussion. Partly it's ignorance, I would argue. A lot of the leaders are not product leaders. They really don't understand. Partly it's politics, honestly. What so many companies do, especially once they get into growth stage, certainly in larger companies, enterprise class, what they often do is they have all these different business units. And of course, there's very limited capacity of what they have really the resources to build. So they have some way of divvying up the uh, capacity among the business units. So what they end up doing is, you know, they have some system, some of them are very informal, some of them sort of use game mechanics on it, but they, they end up uh, saying, all right, you've got this many features you can have, and this team has, or this business unit has this many features, and they each get their own roadmaps, basically. But again, no strategy. And I find this in stark contrast with how good companies work. You often reference a very simple video that tells that story very neatly, doesn't it? The difference between kind of the tactics and the end goal with no strategy in between. I'm sure you know what I'm referring to, the, the South Park's underpants video. It does yes. tell the story very neatly, doesn't it, in 30 seconds? It does. I love, the, uh, <laughs> I love South Park, the underpants gnomes. Nailed the problem for sure. I, that's exactly what I see. <laughs> One of the steps that you recommend and talk about the problems in this lack of product strategy is around roadmaps, as you're saying, and actually many product organizations that are organizing around features and roadmaps as opposed to around product teams. Can you just elaborate on on what you mean by the difference between feature teams and product teams? Yeah, so it's a complicated topic. There's really three kinds of loosely speaking product teams out there, also known as squads, especially in Europe where you are. There's really three kinds out there. 
I hate to admit this, but the most common is really something we don't see much at all. They're called delivery teams. And basically, they are just there to code. That's where they have a product owner and they have a bunch of engineers and they are just there to execute a roadmap. But that's not really done in product companies. That's done in insurance companies and banks and you know those giant enterprises like that. They're not even trying to innovate. They are just trying to crank out code. Now, personally, I'm not interested in that. I, I think it's short-sighted for sure, but that's not really my concern. It's the other two kinds of teams that I, I see. In the product community, there's really two kinds, feature teams and what I call empowered product teams. And what's tricky is that they look, you know, from the CEO point of view, they look pretty similar. There's somebody that's usually called a product manager. There's somebody that's usually called a designer, a product designer of some type. And then they have somewhere between two and about 10 engineers. So at a high level, they look pretty similar. But in a feature team, they're given a roadmap and they're told to build that roadmap. In which case, the designer does a little bit of design. They might do a little usability testing. And then they give the design over to the engineers to build. It's sprint planning and they build it. The product manager there in truth, is much more of a project manager. They're just shepherding, you know, herding the cats to get it from design into code and out the door. And so uh, they are good at delivering features. They're all about output, but that's what they're about. On the other hand, a product team, an empowered product team, they're rather than giving them roadmaps and features, the leaders are giving them problems to solve, like return rate or uh, retention or acquisition costs. They're given problems to solve. And then the team is able to figure out the right tactics to actually solve that problem. Those are the teams that are empowered to figure out the best way to solve whatever that problem is. And because they're empowered, they can be held accountable to the results. So those teams are actually measured not by output, shipping features, but they're measured by business results. It's also a lot harder to be a product team than a feature team because in a product team, you actually don't just design and code. You also have to make sure the solution is valuable. Customers will actually buy it or choose to use it and viable. You can afford it. You can sell it. You can market it. You can pay for it. It deals with the privacy and security issues. So it's a much harder assignment. That's when, you know, when we talk about a product team and a good product company, that's what they're referring to, an empowered product team. Yeah, given space to solve an important problem. But I just want to kind of dial back to that problem. How do you decide what problems to solve? Well, that's actually the role of product strategy. Exactly. Product strategy tells us which problems are the most important. And, you know, product strategy itself is a major topic. Uh, I don't want to oversimplify it. And I also think one of the problems with product strategy is people think it's a step A, B, C, and you're done. And it's, it's much harder than that. And I think this is, gets to the distinction, again, between those good companies and the rest, because product strategies do require strong product leaders. So what do they do? First of all, they have to focus on what's important. And right there, most companies don't like doing that. When I say focus, it doesn't just mean prioritize. It means literally picking the one or two things that really have the chance to move the needle for your organization. You know, that's very difficult for most companies to do, to make those kinds of hard choices. But good organizations do that. They know how to focus. You've all heard the quotes about 
the key to product is what is what you don't do. It's so that you can focus in and really do a good job on what you need to. So the first part is focus. The second part is really where the I'd say intelligence comes in. This is where you need insights for the things that are truly important that you want to focus on. What are the levers that can guide your strategy? So those levers come from, I mean, they can come from anywhere in truth, but I I always point people, I think there's four major sources of good insights. The first is our data. That's where most of our product insights come from today, but certainly not all of them, but it's a great source of insights. The second is qualitatively from talking to customers, from really understanding why they don't use our products and what the issues are. So qualitative insights comes from user research. The third is from new enabling technologies. That's one thing that I love about our industry is what's just now possible is always changing. And so you're looking at those enabling technologies and you're also looking at the industry as a whole and what are the, uh, what are the learnings you can see from the industry? What are the trends? What is the competitive landscape doing? So those are kind of our four main sources of insights. But the leaders have to identify insights that can be leveraged to action. And that's really the third step in strategy is to turn that into action. And that's where we decide which product teams are going to be working on which problems that need to be solved. And then finally, the fourth thing is the leaders actually have to actively manage that work because as soon as teams get going, they find dependencies on other teams. They find technologies that they have to use and license. And there's a hundred things that come up that have to be dealt with very actively. So we want them to be engaged and eliminate those obstacles without resorting, of course, to command and control management, which would defeat the purpose of an empowered team. But those are the four big things, focusing, generating those insights, converting those insights into action, and then managing the teams through success. Admittedly, those are four things that most companies don't like to do, (laughs) uh, I would say. But I'd say those are the four things that good product companies consistently do. And that's really what powers their product strategy. Can you talk a little bit to the the organization of product teams? And and I wonder whether we could kind of elaborate a little bit on the, the kind of context of many European organizations that are often distributed teams. Because I think that's going to be an increasing part of the challenge of of many European companies is teams that are distributed across different uh, locations. Yeah. Well, and to be clear, teams in lots of locations is a non-issue. That's been the case for 20 years now. To be able to have offices all around the world and have teams in those offices, the reason that's so effective is because you have to go where the talent is, of course. And there's no one place in the world, starting with San Francisco, that has enough talent. So you have to go where the talent is. And so that's why so many companies have offices all over the world. So that's not a problem. Where it gets tricky is when you break up a single team, a specific product team. And when that team is not in the same location, that's a team with remote members. And that gets trickier. Now, this is, of course, a uh, difficult time to even talk about this because the whole world is really getting a crash course and working from home right now because of the coronavirus situation. In fact, I have another article coming out about 
how to get the most out of your time working from home. Because it's very disruptive to teams, for sure, that are used to sitting together and solving hard problems collaboratively. And now, as you know, that's a lot harder to do over uh, video calls. And so the main thing I'd say about remote teams, where individuals are spread apart, is it really depends on whether the team is trying to optimize themselves for discovery or delivery. When we say discovery, meaning real innovation, coming up with a solution to a hard problem, that's discovery. Delivery is to actually code and ship that. And both are critical. You don't have a product without both, but it's normal to optimize them for one or the other and sometimes at different times. And the truth is for delivery, I think there's even real advantages when people can work from home. For discovery, it's mostly disadvantaged when you have you know, key people that are not sitting right next to you because the nature of the work is so collaborative, real-time collaborative. So it's not impossible. I know teams and can cite teams that do a good job at it, but it's harder. And all this is about just increasing your likelihood of success. So there is a lot of confusion out there between remote and distributed teams, but there's nothing wrong with having one or more product teams in, in different offices scattered around the world. That's pretty much the common practice now for larger organizations. It only becomes a, a real difficulty when those teams are not together in one of those locations. You've obviously experienced working in some very fast-growing organizations and some very large organizations. When you look at um, that startup, grow up, scale up journey, if you like, what are the critical product hires and how do they change by stage? Well, let's see. First of all, I, I'm a big believer that the original product leader should be one of the co-founders. I would personally never invest in a company without that. And most of the VCs I know won't invest unless one of the co-founders is a proven product leader. And I, I like that person to be the only product leader for a while, typically through product market fit. There's a lot of leverage to that. And you know, like a startup, the product is the company. They're not really any different. So it, it makes, uh, it's fine. But once you get past product market fit and the organization is really trying to scale and especially when they're trying to do a second product or a third product, to create a whole portfolio of offerings. At that point, they really do have to grow the product organization a bit, but not a lot. At certain point, the first tires are typically for the new efforts, a, a a real product manager, and once you get large enough, uh, head of product. Usually before those positions, every company I know already has engineers, so I'm assuming that was a given. <laughs> Most startups I meet have a founder, which is the product person, and a set of engineers, and that's pretty much what we've got. But I'm a big fan of adding a designer as the next uh, product hire. Assuming it's a user-facing product, a product designer can get a whole lot more leverage and can be a good complement to the CEO which is that head of product. So that's the next hire. And then um, we scale by product teams. So there's critical mass on a product team is typically one product manager, one designer, and a minimum of two engineers. So we can grow in sort of units of that once we're really scaling the organization. But, you know, the main thing, because you asked about scale, the main thing I see go wrong on scaling and I'm going to be honest with you. You tell me if you think this is not fair, but I see this as a more severe problem in Europe than in the US. 
and that is a tendency to want to lean on process. Do you think that's fair? Just elaborate on what you mean by that. Well, people tend to use, well, in, in Jeff Bezos's words, process as a proxy for doing good work. It can very easily become about the process. And I'm, I am not about the process. I don't think it's about the process at all. I think it's much more about the people. And so to me, the way you scale is with the right leaders. And you make sure those leaders know how to develop their people. And that's really the, the only successful recipe I know to scale and not degrade your organization. And I think all too many companies lean on process. I don't know if you've ever heard of a process called SAFE. It's, it stands for Scaled Agile Framework. It's truly toxic to everything we've been talking about. And I, I have never seen it actually in a technology product organization, but it is very big in those companies that love process and miss the old bureaucracy of the old days. That's exactly what I mean about what you don't want to have happen. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm, I'm just sitting here trying to, trying to think about what that really means and how it manifests. And yes, I, well, I, think, I, can, I think I can relate to that. I don't know whether it's a, a European-US thing at all, but I, I can certainly relate to it in some of the examples of organizations I've worked with. Yeah, and I want to be clear. I know companies in the US that have this disease in a big way. And I also know companies in Europe that don't, that are, that are awesome as far as I'm concerned. It's just, I just want to say more of a tendency. So I often find myself with companies in Europe sort of trying to discourage that tendency to lean on process and, and to fall back on process and to focus instead on the product, focus on the customers, focus on your people. Yeah, it certainly embraces that, that, that essence of actually that never stopping solving very, very hard problems. You don't do that by being process oriented, even execution oriented, if you, if you have the absence of kind of real customer focus and innovation. So when you um, think about how you then help organizations to kind of really translate those hard problems into products customers love, how do you recommend they kind of focus their product development efforts? I would argue the answer to that is product strategy. And, and like you said, you're just observing that most companies don't do that. The way you see that is that they have a long list. And that's why I think a really common problem is confusing focus with prioritization. I wrote about that uh, I was at a company recently and on their wall, they had a list of their top priority things and they had over 50 items. And they were all prioritized, but that's meaningless and they needed an intervention. And I, I tried to explain to them that that is not focus. And their answer was, you should have seen how many things we're not doing. That's not focus. And so I think prioritization is actually very overrated. We can do much better if we just pick the key problems, which is that focus, and then let the teams try out lots of ideas. You don't need, because most of that prioritization is on the tactics. And that's not where the prioritization should be. How does all of this translate into product roadmap? Is that still a thing? I mean, we had a company coming in to pitch to us and, you know, they will have the one or two year roadmap of things they're going to focus on. How, how does that relate to the focus. I'd have to see the roadmap to know, but 
almost all of them are just tactics. The reason I say that is they're features and projects. If you look at what's on the roadmap, they're features and projects. And the problem with features and projects is that most of them, just empirically in our industry, most of them will end up not working to whatever the goal was. If it was to reduce retention rate, it will end up not solving that problem. And so when we lock ourselves in to tactics for a quarter, for a year, we're locking ourselves into wasted effort. Now, in truth, the product strategy generates at the end, you know, I said you have to focus on some areas and then you have some insights and then you convert that into action. When you convert it into action, there's really two ways to do that. Even though I don't advocate this, if you use that strategy to drive your roadmap, I would argue that at least is an intelligent roadmap. And that would be okay. You're still going to end up wasting a lot of time, but at least it'll be things focused on what's most important. What I advocate is not that. It's that once you have that strategy generating action that generates problems to solve, you've probably heard of the OKR technique, but that's actually what that's for. It's really the alternative to roadmap. So instead of giving a team a list of features to build, you're giving them a set of problems to solve and business results to be measured against. And the irony is here, you're actually giving a team business results to be held accountable to, which, as you know, that's what the board cares about. That's what investors care about. That's what the company cares about. Shipping features is this sort of proxy for that. Because, you, you know, it's not hard to ship features. It's hard to solve problems. I was listening to one of your talks yesterday and something I've heard you reference before, the companies that, that you really kind of rate as having great product strategies, they're very different kinds of business. It's Apple, Google, Amazon, and Netflix, I believe. Do you believe that that focus and alignment between you know, product focus and business results is the common thread to all those organizations? I would say that's part of it more generally. To me, there's two things that all those companies really do well. <laughs> and other companies too. I'm just highlighting those, but yeah. Airbnb and Etsy and Slack. And there's a lot of good companies, but those four really had a big impact on me and I think on our industry. The two large things they do well is they hire teams not to tell them what to do, but for those teams, this is Steve Jobs' words, of course, but to... Uh, so that they could show the, the company, the leaders, what's possible. So the first thing they do is they truly empower their teams, number one. And number two, they have serious leaders. They invest in real leaders, real leaders of product, of design, and of engineering. And they are active leaders. They're not just you know, in the background. They're not passive. They're active leaders. They're not micromanaging, but it turns out there's a lot of coaching and development that's necessary if you're trying to build and scale an organization. I was talking to one of our CMOs. I don't know if, if you know her, Leah Anathan, and sure. um, she'd really like your opinion on it. I would too, which is about how do companies best launch products? Because having been a product marketer myself, that was always something that, that I always found profoundly difficult. You know, how do you create the breakthrough on new features, new capabilities, new products and innovations? So let's separate two things. There's the creating the product and then there's launching it. You're referring to the product marketing side of launching that product. Yeah, right? I am. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> not to make it sound more complicated uh, again, but 
There's also two fundamental kinds of products that would drive how I would answer that. We talk about products for businesses and products for consumers. More specifically, if a product has a direct sales organization, like a lot of your portfolio probably does, enterprise, uh, B2B, direct sales, we have to be really smart about how we launch products in that world because, as you know, that is an extremely expensive sales channel. And the worst thing we can do is waste them. And it's usually our biggest line item for the company. And so the short answer is, if we've got a direct sales organization, the main thing we need to do to launch products well is make sure that nothing launches, meaning we don't actually ramp up the sales force until and unless we have developed reference customers. So there's a big focus in a B2B context to make sure that we have reference customers. That means that before we train the sales force and have them go out, we have got an early set of customers that we have worked with one-on-one to make sure that they are uh, running the product for real uh, in production and that they've paid for it for real and that they love it enough that they'll tell others how much they love it because that is absolutely the best thing we can do to help salespeople sell. And so if you don't do that, there's all kinds of bad consequences that happen. So the number one thing we really push hard on for direct sales products is the development of those reference customers, and then we launch the product. Now, it's very different in the consumer world. We don't have that, that whole dimension that every user is the buyer. So in the consumer world, we have to sort of debut and roll things out uh, differently. And of course, our numbers are usually many orders of magnitude more. So we can have hundreds of thousands to very quickly millions of users, in some cases, billions of users. And so the way we do that, this is really continuous deployment. We will have a constant stream of small changes rolled out progressively, and we'll look at the data to make sure those changes are well accepted and working properly before we spread those out. So there's a whole set of techniques that are known as gentle deployment techniques. So there are different problems, that different challenges, one because of the sheer number and the other because of sales, the sales channel. But those, I would say, are the two most important things when we are launching new capabilities. I have to smile as you were talking about the focus on case studies and chatting to, to Leah, who recently joined Muse, which is a Prague-based hotel property management system in our portfolio, as the CMO. And the first thing she was doing was redeploying some of her team to focus on writing case studies. Any marketing or sales leader that's experienced will tell you that the best thing they could possibly have are successful customers. It's kind of the basics, but often forgotten. Marty, that's been fascinating as ever talking to you, and I'm sure we could carry on all day, but you've got, uh, I hope, a nice evening ahead of you in in Sydney. If um, if anybody wants to find out more, obviously they can go to to your blog, svpg.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Enjoy your evening yeah. if you're getting out and about. All right. Well, Paul, Stefan, I appreciate the time. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview, along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcast. Thank you.